today we are continuing our Acts series. We're going to be in chapters 15 and 16. And there's just a lot of awesome stuff in these chapters. Um, I'm just really excited to share from it. So we're just going to go straight in there. So we got here, uh, beginning, is this sign blocking the words at all? A little? Okay, it's okay? All right, I think we're good. I think we're good. If it's blocking anything, just everyone yell, hey, Brendan. And Brendan, you can move it. Uh, Sweet. All right, so beginning in Acts chapter 15, it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So I got a map for you guys just to give some context. So uh, Paul and his friend Barnabas, they're doing ministry and they're serving uh, the church in Antioch. And this whole region they're kind of ministering to in this time. This faction of people within the church then start teaching that circumcision is a requirement in order to be saved, in order to be in relationship with God. Now, to some of you, this might seem really, really weird. So, to give some context, the uh, circumcision, it dates back to Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 17, with uh, Abraham, who is the father of the Israelites. God made a deal or a covenant with Abraham that his descendants would be his chosen people. And to symbolize that covenant he made with Abraham, he gave him the circumcision. He said, this is going to be a symbol. All males among you must do this. It's going to be the symbol of my covenant that I have made with you. So, as a common theme we kind of see throughout Acts, there's a lot of religious Jews who are trying to cling to a lot of the old covenant, the old Jewish culture and tradition. And here, they're trying to uh, make the argument that that's a requirement for salvation. So Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem to uh, go with all the other apostles and elders, and they're going to kind of discuss this and hopefully come to a conclusion. So the uh, chapter then continues. It says, and after there had been much debate, this is once they've gotten to Jerusalem, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So, uh, Peter, 
is kind of, in making his case, he's recounting something that happened earlier in Acts. Can anybody remember what he's referring to here? It's in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, yes. Okay, this Cornelius ring a bell. Who can tell me what happened at Cornelius's house? Anyone? Yes. Yes. So what? But but what is what is what is what is what is Peter referring to? Yes, the Holy Spirit. So, uh, so Peter's referring to a time. This is in Acts chapter ten. We talked about this probably two months ago ish. Uh, Peter was on a rooftop. He received a vision from the Lord. Ultimately, the meaning of that vision was that the gospel wasn't just for Jews. It was for all people. It was for Gentiles as well. So Peter goes uh, to Cornelius's house, and there he sees all these Gentiles uh, come to know Jesus, and they receive the Holy Spirit, which as we've talked about, when someone accepts Jesus, gets saved, um, they instantly receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter's recounting this event. He's basically saying, I went to this guy's house. I saw all of these Gentiles, who were definitely uncircumcised, get saved and receive the Holy Spirit. So thereby, therefore, there's absolutely no way that circumcision is a requirement for salvation because I saw a whole group of them come to know the Lord and they definitely were not circumcised. Now, the reason this is a big deal is because this is a whole gospel issue. Uh, and this is ultimately the good news of the, the world, that our sins separate us from God. And if you've been in the church your entire life and have heard this a million times, you still need to hear this every day. And it is your first time ever walking to a church. Welcome. And this is the good news of all life. If you remember nothing from today, this is what you need to take away. This is the good news of life. Our sins separate us from God. They cannot be removed by good deeds. In the book of Romans, which are uh, more of Paul's writings, he writes, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it kicks things off by saying, for the wages of sin is death. So we can look at this and be like, I've done something wrong. I'm not dead. I'm still amongst the living. Well, most of the New Testament was written in Greek, and actually the Greek word for death here in the original Greek is thanatos which it's another word for death, but it specifically is referring to the separation of the soul and the body. So it's referring to separation. So what this verse is ultimately saying is that for the wages of sin is separation from God. Ultimately meaning the, the wages of sin is you will spend forever in hell. And it says, for the wages of sin is death. It doesn't say for the wages of X amount of sin or the wages of sin that is this severe or this bad results in separation from God. It says sin. Anyone who has ever done anything wrong, which is every person in this room, 
deserves hell, deserves forever separation from the Lord. Now, the good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, came down on this earth, lived as a man, lived a perfect life that we could not live, and died in our place as a perfect sacrifice, to die this death that we were supposed to pay. So all we have to do is believe that we are sinners and believe that Christ's sacrifice uh, pays for our sins. And once we do that, we enter a forever relationship with God, and our forever uh, goes from being destined in hell to being destined with God in heaven forever. So this pertains to this story in Acts a lot and is super important because this faction of people in the church are saying that uh, doing, being circumcised is a requirement for salvation and that completely contradicts what we just talked about. No amount of good things you can do can make you right with God. And if that is the case, then there was absolutely no point for Jesus coming in the first place. His coming was absolutely, it didn't do anything. Because all of Israel's history, they had to be moral. And they had to do sacrifices and stuff to make up for their sins. So if Jesus comes and dies, only for you to still have to do this, this moral thing in order to be married right with him, his coming made no difference. It's still based on morality. And Paul writes about this uh, later in Romans, again, in, in Romans chapter 11, where he says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So essentially, if we have to do this thing called circumcision or to be made right with God, like, we are under the exact same yoke that our forefathers are under, and Jesus makes absolutely no difference. And we see this. Ephesians 2, another one of Paul's writings, for by grace you have been saved through faith and is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We are saved. We are made right with God. We can enter into a relationship with the Lord forever by receiving this gift. Being made right with God is described as a gift. It is not a result of works. We are saved by our faith in him. A gift becomes ours when we take it. And we take this gift by, again, believing that we are sinners. There is absolutely nothing we can do to be made right with God. But Jesus, the Son of God, came down on this earth, lived a perfect life, and died the death that we are meant to die. You accept this gift by believing that to be true. If you believe that to be true, you are forever God's child. Your eternity is secure forever in heaven. There is nothing you can do to lose that. And this is the good news of life. This is, this is, if you remember one thing from church in your entire life, this is what you need to hold to. Whether you've been in the church, you're a senior in high school, you've been here 18 years, or this is your first time in church, this is what you need to know. And if you've never accepted this gift, today is the day Jesus is calling. This is the most important and big decision you will ever make in your life. Today is the day. So, 
uh, a couple table questions for you to discuss. Uh, I'll give you a couple minutes. Go for it. All righty. So we're going to finish out uh, Acts chapter 15 now. So uh, after they came to the consensus that circumcision is not a requirement for salvation, uh, this is where it leaves us. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called uh, Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, uh, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling to your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives uh, for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing uh, by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed from idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep uh, yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, they send, they come to consensus. This is not a requirement for salvation. They send Paul and Barnabas back up to those churches to deliver them a letter. And then they also send uh, Silas up to kind of confirm it with his own words because, you know, they didn't have Twitter verification or like email signatures to confirm the words. So just as a layer of this is for sure from the council at Jerusalem, they send them back up. And then he says, uh, at, they say at the end, uh, we lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed from idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. It's easy to look at that and be like, wait a minute. Wasn't the whole point of what we just talked about is that us doing good and moral things can't make us right with God. So the context of this is he's talking to people who have already accepted Jesus, that these are the things that you now need to focus on with your life. And by focusing on these things and growing in them more and more each day, you will ultimately become more like Jesus. So these are not requirements of salvation. These are, this is like code to live by as people who have already accepted Jesus as their savior. So the uh, chapter continues and says, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened, and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So they read the letter, kind of deliver the ruling of the council, and it says they rejoiced, which is very understandable. This is a big win for the boys. Uh, because, you know, if you're a grown man in the church and you're like, I might have to do this really painful thing, and finding out you don't have to, it's a major win. I'll leave it at that. Um, so, uh, what I do 
love outside of that here, though, uh, is that it says, but Paul, and in, in, in verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And I absolutely love this. We see that Paul and Barnabas, they don't see this church, they don't see these people as a task or something that they have to do for their ministry. They are deeply relationally invested with these people. You know, there's people within those groups who are spreading untrue things, and they had to make this trek all the way down to Jerusalem to get a ruling to bring truth back to them, and then they're doing ministry with them. And I think if this is me, I would probably start to be like, man, this is a lot of work for these people. What we see here of Paul and Barnabas, everything is about what can I give, not what can I get from these people. And they go through all of this to seek out truth for these people. And it says that they still remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord to them, and continued to do ministry and continued to serve these people. And this needs to be our outlook in life. The second you start thinking, I'm not getting anything from this, or I'm not getting anything from this, you need to instantly flip that and be like, okay, what can I give? And Jesus says it, it's in Acts, we read about this a couple weeks ago, it is more blessed actually to give than to receive. So the second you're like, I'm not getting anything from these messages, I'm not getting anything from this, you need to flip that. Because life's not about you, it's more about other people. So, and when you give, you'll actually find that you're, then you will actually start to receive more. You actually then will get stuff from it. So, Uh, chapter 15 closes with this, and it says, and after some days, Paul and Barnabas uh, are said, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take uh, with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So, I see uh, Paul and Barnabas come together. They start to plan kind of their next journey. Uh, but they have a disagreement on who they would bring with them on their next journey. So they ultimately decide to part ways, do ministry uh, in separate regions, and they go do their thing. That's kind of where chapter f- the end of chapter 15 leads us. So before we get into 16, a couple more questions for you, your tables. Go for it. So uh, we're just going to get into Acts chapter uh, 16 now. So Paul and Barnabas have gone their separate ways, and this is where uh, we are... Uh, now left. Here in chapter 16, uh, Paul came also to, to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
uh, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance uh, the decisions that have been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and they increased in numbers daily. So we see uh, Paul's going about and doing his thing, and he comes across uh, this guy named Timothy, who a lot of us know. He's a pretty substantial figure in the early church and in the New Testament. And Paul wants to take Timothy with him on his next journey. Uh, However, what we see here is Paul has in mind the people he is about to go minister to, which were a lot of Jews. Now, Timothy's, it says Timothy's father was a Greek, meaning that Timothy was definitely uncircumcised. So, it might seem really confusing because it's like, wait a minute, the entire last chapter was about how this like doesn't matter and like this is not something caused a division over, this is not a requirement of salvation. So why is Paul making Timothy do this? Well, what we see here is Paul and Timothy, they have the people they are ministering to in mind and they did not want Timothy's lack of circumcision to be a hindrance to those people hearing the gospel and coming to know Jesus. So all of us, and what we can kind of prescribe from this, when we want to reach a friend uh, with the gospel, like it's very possible that you are going to have to die to yourself in some way, shape, or form. You may have to die to your political views in order to reach someone with the gospel. Because in light of salvation, them hearing the truth of the gospel, they do not matter. There's all sorts of different ways you might have to die to yourself in order to reach someone with Jesus. But the beauty of that is that this is a practical way to worship Jesus with uh, our lives. Uh, Paul, going back to Romans a lot today, says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship is ultimately a sacrifice. That is how it is described in Scripture. And we saw Timothy willing to do that. He totally took a hit for the team in order to make sure that these Jews would have no hindrance into hearing the gospel for the first time. And it says, when we go back, uh, that their numbers increased daily. So clearly, that was effective, and there was fruit for uh, valuing their salvation over his own uh, convenience. Um, so guys, uh, we can prescribe that we, you know, probably won't have to go through something painful like that, but we will have to die to ourselves in order to reach people with Jesus. But this is an act of worship to the Lord, and uh, which is really cool. And we're actually about to get in. Uh, the last parts of chapter 16 are all about worship, so I'm really excited um, to talk about this now. So, but in between what we just read with Timothy, and we're about to get into Acts chapter 16, as a lot. I'm limited on time. So essentially, Paul and Silas 
they were doing their thing, and there is this girl who comes up to them uh, who basically was possessed, and she was kind of bugging them. So Paul commands that the evil spirit that was in this girl, he commands it out of her. Now this uh, woman had owners who were not happy about that, so they reported uh, Paul and Silas to the authorities, and they got thrown in jail for doing this, essentially. So we pick up here uh, at Acts chapter 25. This is after Paul and Silas were thrown into prison and beaten up. And it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. This is one of my favorite uh, parts in all of Scripture, as you can imagine. Because we see they're in a huge time of distress. They're in jail. And their answer wasn't to preach some long, intricate sermon. Uh, It wasn't even to, like, talk to people about Jesus. Their answer was to worship God and to sing passionate hymns to the Lord in their time of distress. This was their answer. And the Lord responded to their worship and responded to their praise by basically sending an earthquake, shaking the foundations of the prison, which freed the prisoners uh, and saved them. But I think one of the things we can take away from this scripture right here is in the very first verse. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Your worship is a testimony to your faith. How you sing, what you give to the Lord in your worship matters. If you brought a non-believing friend here and they saw how you worshipped and you are just emotion and passionless, why the heck should they believe what you have when you're not even excited about it? Our worship is a testimony to our inward reality, our relationship with Jesus. We're about to see that play out in even greater ways here in a second. We see here, picking up in verse 27, when the jailer awoke, he saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners uh, had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up into his house and set food before him. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we see here this jailer says all the prison doors are open and he's freaking out. He's like, I failed. This is on my watch. To the point where he's about to take his own life. 
But Paul says, no. And because of their worship and God's response to that and the power of it, his first instinct is to be like, what must I do to be saved? Because clearly what you guys have is real and I want that. Your worship and praise of God is a powerful testimony. Growing up, uh, as many of you guys know, diehard Steelers fan. But what made me want to be a Steelers fan and got me into it is I would watch how my dad watched the Steelers, and whenever they would score or win, he'd jump off the couch and be like, "Woo!" He'd always be really excited about it. It was really goofy. And then, but that was huge. And seeing how excited my dad was about that really made me start to get into it and be passionate as well. I mean, he also threatened to tie me to a car battery if I didn't root for the Steelers, but that's besides the point. Um, And he would have been right to do so. Um, But the thing applies. Why should someone believe something that you're too afraid of to worship God passionately when you're around other believers. I would not be convinced by a friend who is just standing emotionless during worship. I wouldn't. And I don't want to get like legalistic with this. It's not like, your hands aren't raised. What are you doing? You're sitting, blah, blah, blah. No, not, not at all. That's not what I'm saying here. What you do in worship matters. It is a testimony to the inward reality. And we see that in this scripture. 